This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. A sociologist in an interview mentioned to me that social media was creating the biggest threat to our well-being by widening the gap between the inside us and the outside us. We put our public perfect self out there. That notion came to mind as I read Courtney Mom's debut memoir, The Year of the Horses. Everything about her life might have appeared perfect, ideal. Growing up in affluence, private schools, happy marriage, successful career, adorable, healthy young daughter. Yet, as we know, those trappings are not protection against insomnia, depression, or sadness. What Courtney poignantly shares with us is how difficult it is for us to ask for help or to believe we have the right to depression or how the tyranny of politeness or apathy precludes those around us, even those who love us, from asking questions or facing problems, leaving us feeling lonely and abandoned. But Courtney was determined to save herself, and the path was the rediscovery of a childhood love, which she calls a joyful, weird, magical love of horses. Courtney, the author of several novels and essays that have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and The Guardian, now brings us her most personal story and one likely to resonate with thousands and thousands of others also struggling. It is ultimately a testament to finding joy in those unlikely places. Courtney, welcome to Just the Right Book. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for that beautiful introduction, which made me feel seen, <laughs> seen and, and, and well-read. I, I felt very moved listening to you. Thank you, Roxanne. Oh, that's sweet. Thank you so much. So as I said in the introduction, looking at your life right before you sort of fessed up to <laughs> yeah. things not being right, what did your life look like then? Well, it looked... Perfect. I mean, it looked, it matched my dream for myself that I'd had ever since I was a young girl. I, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be an author. Beyond that, I'd never really dreamt one way or another about being married or not, but I'd always had a fixation on France and I did end up becoming married to a Frenchman, a lovely house in the country. I, I was also, in addition to having just had my debut novel come out, so, you know, why to claim I'd also written a movie with my husband, who's a filmmaker, and we were touring for that. And, you know, I was working in advertising, go, go, go all the time. Great circle of friends, healthy. I was healthy, you know, so everything from the outside looked peachy keen. Right. And what was it that forced your hand? Oh, gosh, that's an that's a hard question to answer because my hand was being forced for so long. It was like pins behind my back, you know, mm. I, and I just, as you alluded in your introduction, I just really wasn't going to give myself permission to break down. I, I also was very aware of the fact, you know, what am I so upset about? You know, things are 
feeling difficult and there's some stuff I haven't dealt with in my past, but you know, all in all, who am I, who in the world am I to complain or admit to depression, you know, next in the face of people who are, are dealing, you know, maybe they don't even have a roof over their heads, you know, get over it, Courtney. I think ultimately what happened was my, my body shut down. I've always struggled with chronic insomnia, but this year, you know, my 37th year, which in my mind, I think of as the year of my unraveling, I, I quite literally just stopped sleeping. A lot of times when people say, oh, I have insomnia, that means a very restless night, lots of wake-ups, hard time staying asleep, which that's my baseline, right? This was, could not sleep, even with medication. I, the medication could not get me to sleep. And my body just started coming apart. I started mm-hmm. developing terrible IBS. I was riddled with canker sores, dropping weight. I started having some hearing difficulties. I couldn't really operate a car well because I just, I mean, I was in La La Land. And um, I think, yeah, it was my my body <laughs> started to beg my mind, you know, to pay attention to it. Yeah. And, you know, there was a, um, let me see if I can find the page. There was a piece that you wrote early in the book that I think a lot of new mothers don't want to admit because, you know, you would just look like a bad person. Bad mom. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Yeah. Bad mom. And what you write is, which I thought was really powerful. But when Nina turned to the name you use for your daughter, everything changed. Her needs became vast and existential. No longer did I tower over her disgruntlements, wondering, is she hot, hungry, too cold? All of a sudden, she wanted entertainment. She wanted meaning, reason, proof. Nina wanted a form of love that was far beyond the planned care I had shown until that point. And What do you think that role, I mean, I think as women, we are unconsciously or consciously raised to care for, to care for. And to what extent, I mean, when you were younger, you would figure no kids for me. Right. Yeah. So was that a propellant for you to begin to reassess as well as you're physically breaking down? Oh, a hundred percent. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you reminded me about the universe of motherhood. You know, when I think back, what, what catalyzed, you know, my, my coming undone, it was not one thing, right? It was many things that started to seep in under the figurative foundation of my home and ultimately made things start to rot. Right. And what you read is absolutely true. When my daughter turned two, I I had really risen to the challenge of young motherhood, which is generally a very challenging time for most people because of the lack of sleep. Well, I've never had good sleep. So it was was familiar territory for me. And I just, as a Virgo, a very controlling person, the preparation needed to step out in the world with a young infant was something that was exciting to me. Okay. Do I have Mm -hmm. the nappies? Do I have snacks? Do I have extra water? Do I have a change of clothes? For me, that was fun. I mean, that level of preparation annoys a lot of people, but I love overthinking things. So that was great. But when, um, when my daughter turned two, you know, it started mommy play with me. And that's when I started realizing 
which led to a deeper realization later, you know, what is play? I don't, I haven't played in a decade. I work, you know, in my writing, which had felt like play and magic making for a long time, but then I became published and uh, expectations were set because my first book was a big hit and the writing wasn't feeling like play. And I looked at my poor daughter, my, she's just such a, beautiful little child who looks nothing like me. And I, I, I just had no idea what, what play meant. And it was also a time, you know, I write about this in the book on top of everything that was happening with me internally in, in the country, the actual, you know, territory I was walking around on. It, it was so frightening. It still is, but this, you know, my unraveling happened a few about I think a year and a half after Sandy Hook. And I truly believed, and I mean, I'm a pessimist, but I really thought that gun laws would change after Sandy Hook. I just thought, okay, I know America and I know Hollywood America from writing films with my husband and a bunch of white kids getting slaughtered. This is going to change things, you know, and nothing changed. And all of this was just building inside of me. And I, I just... I, I didn't, I just broke down, you know, I didn't know what to model for my daughter Mm -hmm. other than anxiety and desperation. I I truly saw fear and danger around every corner inside of my mind. And then outside of the house, I just felt, and I still feel this way. I've just managed to deal with it in, in better ways, but you know, there really is a sense that, um, and there has been for a long time, I think people forget how very long this has been going on, that, you know, if I need to go to Target to pick up some thank you cards, I should probably look for the exits and because there could be a shooting. And and uh, yeah. as a young mom, managing so many other things and also being the person in my household that everyone relied on to show up, you know, for everyone else, I just... There was no map on how to break down. My mom, I never saw my mom really being given the time and space to break down. My brother, as I write about in the book, is very ill, has a lot of developmental challenges. And my mom just always had to keep going, keep going. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, hadn't, I had not seen, especially in the upbringing that I had, a GPS for you know how adult women were allowed to take some time out for themselves, especially as moms. And you know, Courtney, I want to I want to use that as a pivot point to talk about your growing up. But the prism that I want to use for that conversation is your anorexia. So you were, you know, kind of a nerdy girl. You had another nerdy friend, Kristen, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then you made new cool friends. Dropped Kristen. We'll come back to that. And you ended up going to Spain for the summer with one of your cool friends and her family. Mm -hmm. And there you discovered the beauty of grape nuts with skin milk as a diet mechanism. You come back, you're transformed, you're skinnier, and sort of no one notices except the mother of your dumped best friend Mm. who happens to be the principal of your school. And that was an exquisitely written piece. Describe for us what happened with the principal. That might have been the most challenging part to write, honestly. And thankfully, 
Kristen, who is my childhood best friend, we are, we're back in touch. She really feels very grateful for this book. It allowed us to talk about the dissipation of our friendship. And what I started to realize in talking about this book, which isn't something that I realized before, was that at the time at which I was about nine years old, when, you know, I ditched, quote unquote, Kristen for the cool girls, that corresponded with the beginning of my brother Brendan's seizures. He was having horrible, they were actually sudden deaths over and over. And one of the worst ones happened in a pool when Kristen was on vacation with us. And I think knowing myself now and learning to think a little bit more deeply about the way that I move through the world, maybe things were getting a little bit too vulnerable. Maybe she'd seen too much and I needed to reinvent myself. And it was around that time that, you know, I ended our friendship with little ado, joined this cool group of kids. And uh, yeah, in Spain, I just, I'd never thought about my body. You know, I was still a young person, nine, 10 years old. And I just had never been to Europe. I hadn't seen even young girls that looked the way that these Europeans did. And it, you know, I was very starstruck and had a sense that if, I don't know, I could be more slender. Well, I, I just started to learn that if I could control what I ate, then I could control what I looked like. And maybe I could control a little bit of what was going on at home. My parents' marriage was completely dissolving because of, in a large part, because of all the problems with my brother who was hospitalized relentlessly. And um, yeah, I started learning to control my body and also being hungry. And I'm sorry if this is um, you know, triggering for people to hear about this, but being hungry took me to a place where I couldn't be super anxious because you, you get into this sort of liminal space of peace almost, you know? Mm. And I, I, I don't know. It also, it, it, I couldn't participate in sports. I didn't have enough energy. I think it just pushed me to a more withdrawn space that gave me a reason to be an artist. So I, I, I'm not good at field hockey. So I'll play the piano and I'll write stories. It, it sort of invented a reason for my otherness, my, you know, artistic sensibility. And I don't know, I guess I got to be with the popular girls because yeah, it looks cute or whatever, adhered to some form of, you know, 1980s Greenwich, Connecticut waspdom. I'm not sure, but it was then that I think my obsession with control began because things were coming apart in my family. And um, yeah, I, I could only control my body. So that's how it started. But Courtney, the thing that I was struck by was a series of questions I had. So your principal called you in and she did notice and raise the issue, but it didn't go anywhere from that. Your parents didn't seem to yeah. either notice. I mean, you were having dinner in your bed, your grape nuts and skim milk in yeah. your bedroom. I, and I don't know whether the rest of your family was having dinner together or there wasn't a family dinner, but how do you think and and you've probably spoken to your mother about this. Why didn't she bring it up? We would have to call my mom to find out. I mean, this is something that's still really painful for me. And I, I, when I was in therapy and working on this book, and I was saying to Joe, my therapist, who gets a lot of love in my book, I, I was saying I, st I still just don't feel like 
I have the right to be mad at my parents. They really provided for me materially. He came back, you know, and he said, Courtney, your parents let you eat alone in your bedroom for years and years on end. My period stopped. You know, I was really, I had a, a, a serious eating disorder. My mom, I have confronted about this. And mm-hmm. she said, well, you know, you were so difficult. And I was already dealing with so much with your brother. I just like, I just thought you were being difficult. I don't think it read as an eating disorder to her. I think it read as I, everyone has difficult teenage pre, you know, preteen daughters. This is what it looks like to have a difficult preteen daughter. My dad, I got no answer out of. And then my stepmother, she just said, well, we knew and then refused to, she didn't say anything else. So, you know, this, you, you had said a little bit earlier that the principal, my, my, you know, discarded best friend's mom was the only one who noticed, but I think actually she was the only one who said something, you know, I'm absolutely other people. In fact, there was one other classmate of mine who her nickname used to be little bully because she, she was my bully. She was my bully. And she said something to me in a mean way, you know, teasing in a mean way like grabbed my arm, very, you know, you're just skin and bones, you're just skinny mini. But she's actually become a good friend today. And I haven't, she's going through issues of her own right now. So I don't need to be calling everyone up to ask them, you know, what they thought of my book. But I don't know, it's interest. It's, yeah, it's a very loaded time. And clearly, like, I, I am even having trouble responding to it, because I, I didn't, I didn't get the answers that I hoped to get. I did yeah. confront my parents about this, because I gave them the manuscript about a year early. And I gave it to my half sister first. And she said, I'm going to ask you one thing, please tell our parents about the eating disorder, because they clearly don't know. And they're going to take that really hard. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought I was doing a big coming out. And I just got the response that was like, oh, we knew. It was almost more painful to find out they knew, right? That, That was worse. I mean, I will say, you know, I've had some wonderful get-togethers with my my high school. It was K through 12 girlfriends about this and other things. And, you know, we were all agreeing. There's only a certain subset of children from the 1980s, children of privilege, who can understand this level of emotional neglect, how mm-hmm. it would be possible. How How was I given a pony and beautiful summer camps, but left to eat, you know, dry grape nuts in my room while my family, I mean, they did have dinner or they were, you know, at the country club or whatever. But with with my friends, a lot of us discussed, you know, that in our memories, there were long swaths of time where we were completely unsupervised or just, you know, no one read our college application. I don't just the, the helicopter parenting that happens now was not was not the parenting that was modeled mm. for me. I'll, I'll put it that way. With grocery prices the way they are now, it's really difficult to try and figure out ways to save money when grocery shopping. But that's where Thrive Market comes in. Thrive Market is my go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials, and the convenience of getting it all quickly shipped to my doorstep is a huge time saver. I'm such a big fan of Annie's, and the fact that I can get my mac and cheese fix whenever I want is fantastic. 
And as a Thrive Market member, I can save money on every single order. On average, I save over, over 30% each time. On top of the massive savings on each order, Thrive Market has a deals page that changes daily, giving me cash back on so many brands, and they have a price match guarantee. Not only does Thrive Market save me money, but they also save me time. I love the filters on their website and app. They have over 70, whether you're looking for certified gluten-free snacks or non-toxic cleaning essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with the click of a button. And when you join Thrive Market, you're also helping a family in need with their one-for-one -one membership matching program. You join, they give. So join Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash just the right book for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T H R I V E market.com slash just the right book. Thrivemarket.com slash just the right book. Well, you know, Courtney, one thing I want to bring up, because I think it's an important conversation to have in general, and you brought it up a little bit in the book, but when you see someone who you suspect is anorexic, so it seems to me that it would be, oh, you look like you lost a lot of weight, that would feel judgmental or intrusive, or if even if you said you okay, you don't right. look like you're okay. I mean, all of that feels clumsy, uh, potentially harmful. So how do you, how should one, a friend, a parent, what would have been the right thing to say to you at that time? Or what have you learned would have been the right thing to say to you at that time that might have made you get help, might have had someone get you help, would have made you realize you needed help? Yeah. You know, that's such an important question. And I think the answer is dependent on where you are in your life, even in respect to the age that you are. The yeah. thing that got me out of it was a boyfriend at that point, I guess I was 19 or something, who just wouldn't stand for, he was a big bon vivant and loved to eat. And, you know, he didn't have any sobbing heart to heart. He just sort of grabbed me at dinner and was like, stop this BS. Just stop. Let's have fun. Enough. And he you know. loved food. And he loved food and I loved yeah. him. So love and humor, you know, are what got me out of it. But again, that was at age 19 and I'd been having, you know, control issues and a eating disorder. The worst part was actually earlier, you know, from my preteens to, to probably age 16 or 17. And uh, eventually, just especially once I got to college, just a general desire to have enough energy to be social and be with people and take part in things and find my tribe and all of that. But, you know, I think if you're in person with someone and can just say like, hey, I don't want to put this on you now, but, you know, I just have a feeling maybe things are off. Maybe you seem a little unwell. Do you think we could talk about, you know, would you be open to us having a walk together or something and and maybe follow up with a letter, an actual mailed letter? Yeah, I'm a big believer in letters. Yeah, because the, the thing is, is like if someone confronts you, you don't know where you're meeting someone. They might be, I spend a lot of time during my um, depression, which 
I was actively trying to keep weight on and couldn't keep it on, which was a weird reversal from my eating eating disorders of of yore, right? I I I wanted to present as sort of fulsome and healthy, and no one was saying anything then either. And so I thought, oh, I'm passing, I'm passing. If if someone had sort of stops, with this happened to me once with a male friend where he did say, like, what Courtney, you look like it SHIT. What is going on? You look like a skeleton. And that ruined the rest of my night because I realized oh, I'm not passing. And in fact, my friends are like liars or, you know, but if he had done that or anyone, you know, in a softer way and just said, hey, this isn't the time we're at this literary conference. You're about to go on a panel, you know, yeah, right. um, you, you need to kind of have <laughs> your timing sport confidence about you. But I'm going to follow up. Let's go on a walk. Let's have breakfast tomorrow. And, or, you know, and then um if you can't see the person in person again, I, the beautiful thing about a letter is that the person can open it on their own time. Yeah. They can read it and put it away. Whereas emails, you know, you're going through your stuff from Zazzle and Vista print for holiday cards. And then you get something like, can we talk about your anorexia? That That's not going to feel great in your Gmail. So I think- Or a text. Absolutely. I think handwritten letters in an envelope, not a postcard, right? are a nice opening, but, but you should, I think, let someone know that it's coming. Just say like, Hey, I, I'm, I'm going to be here and I'm thinking of you and, you know, with your permission, I'd like to follow up so mm-hmm. that they don't feel that this comes out of the blue. But in general, I mean, we are not known in America for the etiquette around approaching people who we think are ha- having a hard time. We, we haven't been taught that, you know, like, COVID is behind us. I mean, clearly, I, I'm sure you're in the same boat where you, you're starting to see people again. And some people have gained a ton of weight. Some have lost. Some have looked like they might be getting a divorce or perhaps they're going to partner with the wrong person. Who are we to just come in and start judging people, right? It's it's very hard to sense when we have an invitation to say something and and when we don't. Now, in France, my husband's French, and when whenever we go back there, I'm barely out of the plane before, you know, my mother-in-law and father-in-law, they're weighing in in a, you know, one to five star (laughs) rating system on what I look like, how I'm acting. And I mean, you know, that's, that's a different extreme, but I almost appreciate that more. Mm. I appreciate, you know, my, I love my mother-in-law and I go, to the the guest room where I sleep in her house. And I, after having one meal with her, there'll be wrinkle cream on the bed the next day. Like she has her way of getting things across that. Yeah. I mean, I don't love it, but it's. I do think it's interesting that you use the word etiquette. I sometimes call it the tyranny of politeness because I think etiquette in sort of the old school, maybe British way would be don't ask, don't tell, don't tell, Mm -hmm. don't ask or whatever. That would be, but we're halfway through our time and we haven't even gotten to the horses. So (laughs) you were born in September of 1978. Ironically, (laughs) your Chinese birth year is the year of the horse. And there's been much written over the last few decades about the healing power of horses and how they provide a kind of stealth therapy. And As a New York City girl who's been on a horse, I think (laughs) once or twice, I was going to take horseback riding lessons until I got on a horse. What is it? Describe for us what elevates 
a horse to this position of the ability to heal as opposed to, you know, your ordinary pet? So I think with domestic, you know, animal companions, the nonverbal component is so important, right? That you can sit with your dog or your cat and you do not have to use words. You just, your heartbeat, you know, is enough. Your companionship, your physical proximity is enough to communicate something. But with horses, there's the size factor, there's the danger factor, and then there's also the fact that they can be ridden. So I do think that one can enter into a a true working partnership with a horse, even if you're not riding, right? This can happen on the ground in a way that is maybe not achievable with a cat. I'm, I'm a cat lover, so I say this as a cat lover. Sometimes maybe it's possible with a dog because you do have you know working dogs, police dogs, rescue dogs and all that, but you're not physically joined, right? You're not putting your life in their, not hands, but hooves. You do have to develop a, a level of trust with a horse because it's, it's an incredibly dangerous sport that's based on what? I mean, it's based on smell. It's based on your heart rate a lot. Something that's incredible about a horse is when you are on them or near them, they can sense your heartbeat and they can sense elevated cortisol and stress and they will react to it instantaneously. I mean, they absolutely can read instant. It. They yeah. can read it and react. They read it and they react. And thus, for me at least, that mirroring effect that horses have provided instantaneous feedback to me that I was not able to, that I wasn't achieving with other people. Like I said, I wasn't doing well and my friends, for whatever reason, weren't calling me out on it. Whereas I would walk into a stable and these horses I didn't know would pin their ears which is a sign that a horse is stressed, or they would weave, which is a sort of repetitive bobbing of the head, which is a sign that they were stressed. Why were they stressed? I was making them stressed. I would get Mm. on horses and they would bolt because my body was so tense. My cortisol was so elevated. So in order to have a a positive relationship or, or just outcome with a horse, I had to be more attuned to my own energy and honestly, just be honest about where I was at. I was having more, and to some extent, I continue to have the most honest discussions with the horses Mm. because they just, they don't, there's no sarcasm. There's no irony, grudges, I mean, (laughs) to, to a certain extent, but they just, if they don't want your BS, you know, they'll just walk away from you. Off you you go. (laughs) Off you go. Yeah. And then again, the size combined with the nonverbal factor. And, you know, I'll speak to some of the research I used in the book. I read a lot about um, veterans, military veterans who had seen such awful things and also sexual trauma survivors who had had such awful things done to them, who were not achieving the the outcomes they were hoping for or other people were hoping for, for them in talk therapy, because they didn't want to talk about this. They Mm -hmm. didn't want to revisit it. And with horses, whether or not you have an an equine therapeutic relationship or you're, you're there as a rider or just a horse lover, no, they're not asking you to talk about your stuff, but you can lean against them. If you have that relationship, you can sort of let them breathe on your face and just be with this very, very large animal 
that can not only hold your weight, but hold some of your storytelling without you needing to put it into words. And the time that all of this was happening to me, it was also a time where I was overdue. I was supposed to deliver my second book and I, it was not working. It, it was the first time my writing had totally failed me. And it was also that writing had been my greatest pleasure. And to, to go back to a nonverbal form of communication, body language, using my heart and my breath was deeply, deeply healing for me at a time where words weren't working and also held little power than they did mm. before. Courtney, I love the way you describe Joe, who's your fledgling, you called him your fledgling <laughs> therapist. And you, he was a child. He was so young. <laughs> you found him on what you refer to as the World Wide Web, and he was like five years old. Yes, basically. Uh, but he's turned out to be, you know, from reading the book, a pretty ideal, wise therapist for you. And he once told you that productivity and success were your defense mechanisms. And I'm curious about two things. I'm curious what that meant to you, but it was also fascinating to me that you took your interest in riding into playing polo, and it made me wonder, how'd you manage to curtail your general desire to succeed or win and just indulge in the pleasure of playing? <laughs> yeah, that's such a good question. Well, first of all, your first question, when he said that, you know, your defense mechanisms are productivity and success, I thought, wow, you really know me. <laughs> and then I thought, well, that's why exactly why I'm in therapy, because I can't get my second <laughs> book to work. And if my second book doesn't work, that means I'm not a success and I need to be productive. All of this is true. Right now I'm trying to work on a novel. It appears I've forgotten how to write one. And thus I feel like, an, you know, a different level of depressed, but I've been very upset because I'm not able to be productive and like, I need a new book. And these things are still really hard for me. But here's the thing, to answer your second question, I'm good at writing. I have a talent at writing, right? That's my, that's my calling in life. I'm not bad at horseback riding. Polo, you know, is not necessarily my calling. No one is uh, you know, busting up my phone line to get me to play professionally. I have moments of <laughs> talent but I love it so much anyway. I love it so much anyway. And I have to say, whether it's by design, you know, and not letting myself go toward activities that I'm not great at, or maybe this was just, you know, my, my own way out of my midlife crisis, but this is really the first time I've indulged in something just for the pure joy that it brings me. And I've now become this sort of ambassador where I just am, deeply committed to trying to get women, especially of, you know, middle age or whatever the heck I am, to do things that make them smile and make them feel that just that unfettered joy that is, is sort of rare these days, right? Because even when we're having a happy moment, a lot of times we think, wait, am I supposed to document this for Instagram? Am I supposed to, aren't people supposed to weigh in on this happy moment? You know, seeing sunsets, right? All these, these things, these simple things, don't we need to throw them up on our TikTok? And um, yeah, you can't do that while you're playing polo. That's a wonderful thing about, for me, the kind of person I am, being with horses, cell phones cannot 
come into play. You, you, the mm. minute you look at, you know, you're off your kick, especially I, I rescued a horse this year. And if she doesn't have my undivided attention, I, you're in trouble. I no, I am in serious trouble. She's a violent, <laughs> she's a violent animal. Well, Courtney, you know what this reminds me of? And it was a coincidence that this happened right before I read the book. My husband and I were in Rhinebeck, New York, and we went on a hike and we're coming through these beautiful fields and heading up what I wouldn't call a mountain, what I would call a hill. And at the top of a hill was a little girl, maybe nine or 10, doing airplanes, you know, with her mm. arms perpendicular to her body and twirling and running up and down the hill. And uh, I wanted to take a picture of her, not but to remember it. Yeah. But her dad was nearby and I figured he'd be yeah. like creeped out at some old woman taking a picture of his daughter. But I was struck in a in a profound way about how tricky it is. I'm in my 70s, so I'm that much older than you to feel a sense of being carefree. Oh, yeah. You know, or you describe it as joy. But I think what I was reminded of is resurrecting whatever you as a kid considered play, or maybe even as a kid you didn't even play, but discovering what that is for you. And it doesn't really matter what it is. You know, for you, it was obviously horses. And I, I think you... I was very struck by how effectively in the book you describe the physicality of the relationship with a horse, the, you know, the part that you just described about the reaction. And I do, I do hope, I assume you do also, that when people read the book, that they will be encouraged to think about that for them. I I love everything you just said and will certainly go into my evening with that beautiful image of the young girl and the airplanes. It's so, it's, it's perfect. And the word carefree is exactly what I think we all need to be striving toward. Because it's true that even the word joy, you know, or authentic experiences, these words have been tarnished, but carefreefulness <laughs> is an ambition of mine. And I would say to anyone listening, who's struggling with their mental well-being. It's going to be really hard to do, but I have to say, and this is someone, you know, I am speaking to you as a former non-athlete, you know, one of the least athletic people growing up that I knew in a very athletic town. I, I really do think that physical activity and possibly team sports as an adult in an adult body or team activities, not necessarily competitive sports, could be an effective way out of depression because first, when you're depressed, at least for me, I was not in my body. It was just in my head all the time, but my body had become this yeah. thing just floating around in space that was causing, it, it just, you know, it wasn't in my body. Now I chose horses, but it could be softball, right? It could be tango, just something that pushes you back into recognizing that you do, you do have a body, whatever that body is, you're gifted with a body. And then also, if it is some sort of team activity, even just a dance class, you will inevitably, maybe just through financials, have accountability. Oh, I bought a 10 pack. I don't want to waste it. I have to show up. Oh, I really started to become close to that woman, Cindy, you know, in Tai Chi. I, 
be nice to see her again. And she's counting on, on seeing me there. Um, you know, the team sport became my AA, basically. Mm -hmm. I talk about this in the book. We had this crazy motley crew. I mean, there's not that many people that want to learn polo as an adult, you know? So my team, and I, I speak about them, I, I hope, very lovingly in the book, you know, was comprised of a 12-year-old, a 16-year-old. Yeah, right. There was a 70-year-old. Well, there's a 70-year-old dentist whose wife made him stop playing. But, you know, I was falling off. I mean, in the beginning, I was so bad. And they they kept saying to me, please come back. Don't give up. You're part of the team. And now God knows why they wanted me there because I was yeah. fouling. But but I just, I don't know. These, these dear people who owed me nothing and certainly didn't know me as an author. We never talked about my outside life. It was just what we could do on the horses. They kept bringing me back and bringing me back and ultimately participating in something that I was deeply afraid of because I'm not afraid of horses, but polo, the speed, everything scared the bejesus And you're only holding on with one hand, right? Because yeah, you've got this you, mallet. Exactly. And and I mean, you were going fast and um, I fell off, you know, a lot. But in all horse sports, but especially polo, you have to learn to react in the second. You cannot overthink things. And all I was doing in my depression and in my day job, thinking, overthinking, what would a character do? Da, 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 da. And I really believe I thank the horses and I thank the polo for equipping me now with a decision-making ability in the moment. You know, mm -hmm. where I'm not, I'm not living in my head all the time. I'm doing that when I'm writing my fiction and nonfiction. But as a human being in the world, I, I, I believe that I'm able now to reach, I have access to coping mechanisms in a, in a more fluid way than, than I did before. It was quite a rusted pipe before. <laughs> To me, there's nothing more fun than learning. And with Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best mind anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. You can learn how to cook the perfect egg from Gordon Ramsay, improve your writing skills from Amy Tan and Billy Collins, or learn tactical empathy from former FBI lead hostage negotiator, Chris Voss, with over 150 classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you always wanted to do is closer than you think. I highly recommend you check out Masterclass, get unlimited access to every class, and as a Just the Right Book listener, you get 15% off your annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash write book now. That's masterclass.com slash write book. Happy learning. Courtney, I want to pivot a little bit before we totally run out of time. And there's a couple of things I want to make sure that we cover. You had written three novels and I'm sure when you publish, I imagine, I'm not sure because I've never <laughs> written one, but I would imagine that when you're publishing a memoir, there's a worry about exposing people that don't want to be exposed, that there's going to be a reaction. You might even want to edit up yourself or about your parents or people you love and memories are in the eye of the beholder, right? Yes. <laughs> or, or in your case, the writer. 
So I'm in that whole bundle of questions. I'm curious what motivated you to write the memoir. What was the reaction of your parents? I mean, I do think ultimately they come out looking exposed, but you know, you seem to have developed an understanding that they were doing their best. Yes. So just share with us your thinking around the experience of publishing a memoir. Well, I I did not want to publish a memoir. I was actively working to not publish a memoir. I tried this as a novel a, a few times. Ultimately, I wrote an essay for the New York Times about trying to learn polo as, you know, basically a 40-year-old mom. And it was the reaction to that article. I think I published that in 2017. So well before I started writing this book, but the very positive reaction, I got a lot of letters from adults, especially adult women to that, that said, you know, I don't, I'm scared of horses. I don't give a hoot about horses, but this made me want to get back in the pool. This made me want to pick up my hula hoop again. And I thought, oh God, that, that I can wrap my head around. If I can write toward that, you know, inspiring adults and especially adult women and double, especially adult mothers to prioritize fun for themselves, you know, then that, that's something, that's a goal that I, I, I'm willing to expose myself for. And, um, ultimately I did something, I decided to share the book with my family, uh, you know, about nine or 10 months before it came out and, you know, made no promises, but just that I would hear them. And I'm glad I did that because it sort of became its own fact checking journey, listening to the way that some of my family members and my husband remembered things versus how I had experienced them led me not to think, oh, I was right and they were wrong, or shoot, I was wrong and they were right. I, I just realized like, well, shoot, you know, we all remember things very differently. So now what? And if you read the book, I hope that you'll see or at least experience that I decided the way that I decided to bring the fact checking in was to leave everything I had remembered as a child. If I was writing for my child's narrative, in place, exactly the way that I had remembered it as a child. And then later in the book, you'll see me come back as an adult and say, you know, that motorcycle incident, The my mom, I had had it completely wrong, the reasons for which she bought a Harley Davidson. And I come back in and course correct. And then there's incidents with my husband where I simply say, this is how I remember it. And this is how he remembers it. And I place no judgment, I hope, you know, I, I try to let the reader decide what that means, <clears throat> the fact that we had different accounts. And I, I don't know, I, I, I'm proud of, of the way that I brought the new material into the book. I'm, I'm happy that, that I involved works. my family. Thank you. Yeah, it I, does I was, work. I was pleased. And I think, you know, my family, I know that they love this book. I think I know that they think it's a beautiful story. Would they prefer, you know, that it be a novel? I'm going to say absolutely yes, but I love them very much. And I, what you said is exactly right. Not, not only were they doing their best, but looking back, you know, I was not an easy young person. I'm still not, I'm not, I'm not an easy, not an easy person to live with. And, um, I did go for too long thinking, you know, it's like there's that Taylor Swift song that's become a, a meme now that's like, hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. Well, yeah, a little bit, you know, maybe it was yeah. like 
team effort. But I, you know, one thing I'll say just to conclude this this question is, um, I asked my Tin House, my wonderful editorial team, am I not getting a legal review? You know, when they bring in lawyers to make sure there's no defamation of character. And my editor, Maisie, said, oh, well, we looked at it and the only person up for defamation of character would be yourself. Uh, so <laughs> unless unless you're planning to sue yourself, you know, we're all good. And, you're and that's, good. Something, that's something I'm proud of, too, is I, I went very hard on myself, I think. And, and uh, I put myself through this, the ringer and um, took myself to task for things. And I'm I'm happy. I'm proud that I did that. Uh, Courtney, one uh, quick question, and and then my last question. You talked about how in the weeks following the publication of your second novel, Touch, that you were emotionally a mess, that you, (laughs) you know, was just not good. So having learned what you have over the subsequent years, how was the publishing of the year of the horses easier or was it harder? Well, you know, it's a memoir versus fiction, but really what it comes down to is uh, my first two novels were with, you know, big, big houses, right? Penguin, Random House, a, a big, wonderful editor, Sally Kim at, at those houses. And The Year of the Horses was with Tin House, a much smaller press. So I'll just be candid, you know, big house, big money, right? Small house, not so much money. So the stakes are lower, first of mm-hmm. all. You, if you're thinking of, you're hoping to earn back your advance, you don't have to sell hundreds of thousands of books. <laughs> the bar that you need to reach up uh, is much lower. And, you know, for a lot of my books that are with the indie presses, I already earned out by the time I was touring for those books. And that's a nice, confident, happy place to tour yeah. from. And I also learned to not overdo it. You know, I, this is my fifth book. So, do quality over quantity. Certainly for my first two books, I said yes to absolutely every guest post on every blog, you know, every interview with a 13 year old who had a vlog. (laughs) And I'm a little, I have a little bit more uh, discrimination now, discretion, I guess I should say. And um, yeah, I don't know, memoir. I mean, I think I'm fortunate in that my book is hitting during a time where because of the pandemic, we are able to talk much more candidly about mental wellness. I'm, I'm sure that you, just like myself and all of our listeners, are admitting to people when they're in therapy or talking about, you know, maybe trying out therapy in a way only 10 years ago, you know, none of my friends were admitting that they were in therapy. Um, you ask people how they're doing and they, they, a lot of people are honestly saying, like, I'm really struggling. You know, they're going on to Twitter. They're saying, I'm struggling. I I see a candidness around struggles and mental health that that I didn't before. And that has honestly made talking about this book a a joy. I Mm -hmm. have been really lucky that so far, I think with very few exceptions, a lot of people are just really glad and happy and just and welcoming, you know, to talk about this subject. And my book has invited people to share their own stories with mm-hmm. me in a, in a way that, um, that feels exciting to me. And I hope, I do think that, you know, we we're at a, a new dawn kind of place where mental health and well-being uh, will be a priority now and, and hopefully less shame and uh, stigma will be attached to, to depression and any, and, and anxiety. Mm-hmm. So here's my last question for you, which is a two-part question. 
what does success look like for you now? And coupled with that is, what is it that brings you joy these days? Oh, that's a lovely question to to end on because we're talking at the time when the best of end year lists are coming out, you know, the New York Times best of the the 10 best books to keep on your car dashboard, the 10 best books. And uh, that's always a challenging time of year for a writer. But I know that I have progressed as a human being and an artist because I just don't care about those damn things. I mean, they're wonderful if they happen to you. But I understand now that success is, um, it's, it doesn't look like sales, you know, it really looks like connecting with the right reader, which is so deeply, deeply meaningful when your book ends up in the right hands or when someone really exciting like yourself, Roxanne, you know, sees something in, in my book that resonates with them. And, and you know what, that takes time. Publishers want that to happen within two weeks after your your pub date. And uh, sometimes it works out that way. Usually it takes money to help it work out that way, but mostly it takes time. And I'm really at a place where success for me looks like being able to work on something new, having the time and space to, to work on something new with time, you know, not, not under the terrible time crunch where I have to deliver a book in a year not with some huge book advance, but with just enough that I can write. Usually I write in the morning. And then honestly, I, I try to see my horse in the afternoon. And then, you know, after the, when the bus comes, then I'm a mom and I'm a wife and try to do those three things, you know, that's a nice way to divide a day. (laughs) It's amazing. That's fabulous. So when it works, I feel like the luckiest, most successful person on earth and and just being able to quietly, slowly work on a new piece of writing is, I mean, that is it. That is, that is the place. That is where I plug in. And uh, yeah, so, and then happiness, I, I rescued a, an ex-racehorse, Abuelita. We're almost at our year anniversary. My first time as a true home, not homeowner, horse owner, well, it cost as much as a home, <laughs> horse owner. Took her from a really bad situation and uh, we're slowly building our bond and um, watching her gain weight and get light back in her eyes. And, you know, a, a little bit too much springiness in her step is has been a really beautiful uh, journey for me. Yeah. So, Courtney, I, I uh, in closing, I want to thank you for your bravery. I think writing memoirs always take a certain amount of bravery and for taking the, the time with us. And I hope our listeners will turn to the book as they are experiencing what you experienced or know of people, because I think you do make it safe to talk about it, to think about solutions and to reach out to people. So thank you for taking the time to be on Just the Right Book. And thank you for writing The Year of the Horses. We've been talking with Courtney Mom, the author of the memoir, The Year of the Horses. Thank you. Thank you, Roxanne. This, this means the world to me. And thank you for sharing my, my book with your listeners. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. 
JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.